This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to value listeners, this week we're going to be talking about creating scale in a collaborative care model to improve behavioral health outcomes. Our guest this week is Matt McClett. Matt is a military veteran. He's a psychiatric and mental health board certified registered nurse. He's the senior director of clinical operations at Neuroflow which is a digital health company that provides industry-leading solutions for technology-enabled psychiatric collaborative care. And Matt is also the co-founder and executive director of a nonprofit organization called Action Tank. You're going to hear more about it in the conversation with Matt today, but during his tenure in the U.S. Army, he provided direct patient care for service members that sustained physical and psychological trauma during their deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. These experiences led Matt to become intimately involved in developing and evaluating mental health and substance use disorder policies at the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics and as a subcommittee member on the Philadelphia Mayor's Opioid Task Force. He's won multiple awards and has been published in peer-reviewed studies for his work on policies related to the opioid epidemic. Our listeners are going to learn so much today. Daniel, after listening to Matt share his insights on how to develop technology-enabled collaborative care models that improve behavioral health outcomes, I'm confident our listeners today are going to have a significant competitive advantage after this week's episode and win this Race to Value. Matt, welcome to Race to Value. We're so happy to have you on the show this week. Yeah, thanks, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Matt, in getting to know you a bit in preparation for this interview, I have such admiration for you as a leader in value-based care. I mean, you have such a wide breadth of different experiences from your work as a nurse, a nonprofit leader, an industry innovator, a policy wonk, and a public health advocate. You've done so many incredible things in your life and your career so far, leading you to where you are today at Neuroflow a leading digital health company that combines workflow automation, patient engagement solutioning, and applied AI to really support behavioral health integration. And I know your military background must have played 
apart and helping you develop the perseverance and discipline to pursue this chosen endeavor to really create a happier and healthier world with collaborative care and preventative medicine that reduces medical costs and improved health outcomes. You have so many accomplishments in your bio, but one of the things that really stood out to me was your connection to the Pat Tillman Foundation as a recipient of their prestigious military scholarship. And Pat Tillman, for our listeners out there, just to remind them of, of who he was, I mean, he was an American hero in so many ways. I and mean, he was driven by a, a passion for a righteous cause. You know, everyone knows the story of him leaving the NFL and serving his country. And before his untimely death on the battlefield, he was quoted as saying, passion is what makes life interesting, what ignites our soul, fuels our love, carries our friendship, stimulates our intellect and pushes our limits. A passion for life is contagious and it's uplifting. So Matt, as we start our conversation today, I thought it'd be great for our listeners to hear a little bit more about your background and really what passions you have in your life that really aligns with the work that you're doing in Neuroflow. Yeah, thanks, Eric. I am, I am so happy you mentioned Pat and, and the foundation. You know, one thing, I'm, I'm paraphrasing Pat a bit here, but, you know, he said something to the extent of, if you're not passionate about it, why do it, right? And there's something about his energy, what he did, how humble he was, I think a lot of people know the story of Pat and leaving the NFL, uh, you know, being a, a Pro Bowl safety and all those things. And that's fantastic. But the things people don't know about Pat are that he got his master's degree while in the NFL and that he continued to be a lifelong learner, read books all the time. And those are the sort of things that really I think about and make me wonder, what am I doing to make myself better every day? So I think that's an, a really important segue in understanding who I am and where I come from. From my humble roots of really starting to work in the healthcare setting at 17, I was pretty much every role you could imagine in the hospital, from being a, a patient care attendant, you know, where I'm literally sitting there with patients one-on-one -on -one at, at 17 years old, and a nurse's aide to a registered nurse. And when I uh, graduated college, going into the Army, I started to treat combat trauma. So I was at Walter Reed, saw all the trauma coming from Iraq and Afghanistan, primarily blast injuries. And what was really interesting when I was there is the incredible support that these warriors had, right? We could talk about the different nonprofits that were always there to support these individuals, the benefits and things that they had. The transition to the VA was, was made as seamless as possible for these individuals and they deserved it, right? Let's be really clear. But what it made me really think about is what about the rest? What about the people that were in that squad with the same individual that witnessed the same event that saw their battle buddy quite literally get blown up, what are we doing for them? And it really drove me a lot to begin kind of the next phase of my career, shifting from the traditional combat trauma to more of the invisible injuries and thinking about how do we actually treat behavioral health? And that's, that's what led me to kind of my next phase of my career where I had the opportunity to lead an uh, inpatient psych unit down in Fort Hood. And it, it was just, such an opportunity for me to see how mental health is really perceived in healthcare, which spoiler alert is, is not usually great. We're often the black sheep. We're often very much uh, separate. One example was each unit in the hospital would be called what they were, right? So the ICU is the ICU. The emergency department is the emergency department. The cardiovascular unit was the cardiovascular unit, but inpatient psych, we were known as three East. Nobody even wanted to say that we were a behavioral health unit because there was so much stigma tied to it and attached to it. And as I moved on and went to grad school, I realized that as much as I loved touching patients every day, 
it was really my work on facility and hospital level policy where I started to see the outcomes that I was looking for, where I was actually making a change. Um, we had something like a 75% reduction in restraint use because we started doing some retraining and, and new policies put in place. So I started to work much more closely around public health policy. I was working in substance use, particularly here in the city of Philadelphia. I was on the mayor's task force and had a great opportunity to work with, with policymakers and researchers and trying to close that gap between the two to really connect kind of best practices with what policy is saying. And through that time, it, there was still something missing and there was still a gap that exists. And when I met Chris Malero, who's our, our CEO of Neuroflow, he's a a fellow military veteran with me, we were both having drinks one night. And what's interesting to know about Chris and I is we both have founded and ran nonprofits as well. So really, we were, were kind of nonprofit buddies together and talked about changing the world quite often. And when he started Neuroflow, really had an interest in bringing me on to really just kind of help understand the US healthcare system and where we drive value and understanding like, what is it about technology that can be a game changer in behavioral health? That's really what I was brought on to do is to think about those really hard hitting questions. And, and today, I think I think we've done a great job at answering that, but I'm, I'm so grateful now to, to have a, a platform and an opportunity to, to have an impact and continue what matters the most to me, which is about what I'm passionate about. Because just like Pat said, if, if I'm not passionate about it, there's no sense in doing it. Matt, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that passion with us and helping us understand your story and about the advancement of behavioral health and behavioral medical integration. This is such an important challenge in value-based care, and it has major implications for our country. I mean, right now, one out of five Americans, this is over 51 million people, are living with a behavioral health condition. And alarmingly, there are approximately 20 million individuals that have a substance use disorder. And 9 million people, or 4% of the population, have had a suicidal thought in the past year. With one out of five Medicaid beneficiaries experiencing SUD and or a mental health condition, this comes up to about 46% of the total Medicaid spending on healthcare services. And in that population, only 10% of people who need treatment for SUD actually receive it. And for those with opioid use disorders, 20% of these individuals don't receive treatment despite many of them having formed the addiction due to the medical industry's negligent overprescribing of those medications. And then to further exacerbate these societal issues with behavioral health and SUD, we've had the COVID-19 pandemic, creating even more stressors such as forced social isolation and unforeseen economic hardships for so many. So Matt, given your experiences as, as a behavioral health nurse, working with patients suffering from PTSD, your health policy advocacy work to address the opioid epidemic, and now your leadership role as a technology executive in the behavioral health space. Can you provide our listeners with your informed perspective on the state of mental health in our country? And what should ACO and risk-taking executives be thinking about when it comes to solving for this problem? My heart breaks, especially this week when the reports came out from the CDC about the increase in overdose deaths in, in 2020 from 2019. And we're not talking about a small increase. We're talking about a 30% increase in the country. So when I talk about you know some of these value-based care and maybe what matters to healthcare administrators, I, I just want to bring it back to that these are people and these are real lives that we're talking about. And if we don't do this right, lives will be lost. So this is about saving lives and this is about helping people not just live, but thrive. So with that, let me just mention that I hope most people listening know that there is a shortage of mental health providers, whether that's therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, 
This is most acutely seen in rural communities. In fact, over 50% of counties in the country don't have a single psychiatrist. And what this does is this leads to long wait times, maybe not getting people into the right level of care. And what's worse is we really struggle to prioritize and identify which individuals are most acute. So if I do have a certain amount of bandwidth in my behavioral health practice, how do I know which patients are most costly? How do I know which patients are most at risk for suicide or other adverse outcomes? And we don't really do a great job at doing some upfront screening and measurement-based care to really identify that. And while patients are waiting you know, up to four weeks to get in with a therapist, we're not really giving them any sort of support in the meantime. We're really kind of saying, just, just hold out, just hang on a little bit longer. And then when they finally do get to that first appointment, the first appointment's a long intake process. You're probably repeating a lot of the information you've already told somebody. So patients don't come back because they didn't know what to expect when they got there and they feel like I'm, this isn't going to help me. So there's challenges throughout the entire process here that we really need to improve on. And my messaging to the health system administrators that are listening today is we can't just hire our way out of this. There is a shortage of therapists and psychiatrists. So even if health systems start competing against each other and bidding higher and higher and paying higher salaries, we're still not going to be able to fill this gap. And what we need to think about instead is, is models where we can treat conditions in the primary care or other physical health setting where the rest of our healthcare is treated. We need to think about how to use our LCSWs and our psychiatrists and valuable mental health assets more effectively and efficiently. And this may mean things like using these individuals not for one-on-one -on -one therapy, but instead as consultants in order to supervise groups of paraprofessionals that can be trained in delivering behavioral interventions or training our staff to really know how to treat these conditions, understand these conditions, and understand what evidence-based practices might be in place for them. Well, Matt, I would love to learn more about the integration of primary care to really solve this important problem. And you know, I think about value-based care and it goes without saying that primary care is the tip of the spear when it comes to the ambulatory care sensitive conditions like those chronic diseases we always hear about that are driving costs like CHF and COPD and diabetes. And in that model for managing chronic disease, Primary care is upstream and can curb upwards of 80 to 90% of the, the costs that happen due to unnecessary specialist visits, avoidable inpatient stays, and ED visits. However, with behavioral health, it's a little bit different. And you talked about this, how there isn't a lot of access for behavioral health specialists. And unlike the example of the unmanaged patients with chronic disease that undergo a specialist intervention with often unnecessary procedural intensity, those with behavioral health conditions, for the most part, they can't be seen at all because there aren't any access points. And in my research, I've read that about 70% of primary care appointments in the country include some psychosocial issues and less than half of the, those primary care patients receive any mental health treatment at all because of the shortage of specialists. And to put this in context for our listeners, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration estimates by 2025, the U.S. will have a shortage of 15,000 psychiatrists and 26,000 mental health counselors. Research also shows, though, that, and I wanted to spell this out for our listeners, the Psychiatric Collaborative Care Model, otherwise known as COCM, that's an effective and efficient way to deliver integrated care for complex 
patient behavioral health needs. COCM is a model that really enhances the usual primary care, but adds a couple of things like care management support for behavioral health treatment, as well as regular psychiatric interspecialty consultation with the primary care team. So Matt, I wanted you to provide some perspective on how to achieve better integration of behavioral health and primary care. And can you talk a little bit about this COCM model and how it maybe provides a more idealized integration approach to create scalability and really address some of the challenges we see with the limited supply of psychiatrists and psychotherapists to see everyone? I think first and foremost, this this shouldn't be shocking, but any program, you can't just turn it on overnight. What's really necessary is some effective implementation and planning, and particularly thinking about how is my organization going to get reimbursed? What are some funding streams we might have available to ensure success of the program? And understanding that change will be required at every single level of the healthcare system when you start doing integrated behavioral health or these new services. So we need to think think about identifying champions and how do we get buy-in from the C-suite all the way down to the primary care provider and office staff. Each group's going to have their own challenges with trying to create change management, right? Just doing new things in their job. But they're also going to get a lot of benefits from these models too. So if I am the person bringing these, these new, whether it's psychiatric collaborative care or other integrated behavioral health models, really understanding your audience and how to explain what the value is to them. So for example, thinking about primary care providers, they have so much on their plate. We're asking them to do an incredible amount of work in 15 minute visits. However, with psychiatric collaborative care, what we're allowing for is for them to have a single referral source. When I think there's a patient with a behavioral health condition and I'm not really sure what to do, right now the status quo is to try to find a referral source for them. Where do I get this patient? Where do I place them? Often these visits end up lasting 45 minutes hearing the patient out. Actually having somewhere to direct them to, being able to track that care over time so you know you can actually track the success and see how they're doing. There's lots of ways where we can actually make this easier for the PCP when we incorporate these programs into their, their everyday practice. And psychiatric collaborative care is, is one integrated behavioral health model. Generally, psychiatric collaborative care is, is part of what we call a stepped care model which basically means we're going to get the right patient to the right level of care. So there are certain patients who maybe have psychotic disorders or have personality disorders or certain conditions that are really not appropriate to be treating in the primary care setting. And we're still going to be referring them to specialty care. We're probably still going to be sending them to kind of the traditional behavioral health clinic. However, there is the vast majority of the population with mental health conditions that are much more in kind of this mild and moderate right range. And particularly thinking about conditions like depression, anxiety, substance use disorder, which absolutely can be treated effectively in the primary care setting. And how COCM helps with that is you're bringing in a team model. So now you have the PCP who is still in charge of that patient's care. So they understand where that care is coming from. All of the prescriptions and things are also going to be coming from that PCP. But what they have is the support of a care manager who's going to be checking in with that patient each month tracking outcomes, delivering brief interventions, which could be things like goal setting and behavioral activation to help help them get up and move, right? Change their life, change something. And then the psychiatrist is there to check in with that care manager each month and come up with a plan that could be medications, 
but it could be lots of other treatments too. And helping to, to really create an individualized treatment plan together as a team and monitoring that outcomes over time. Collaborative care is not indefinite. So this is generally you know, gonna be about three to six month progress. But what we're gonna do is we're going to base the outcome of the program on the outcomes of the patient. Basically what we're gonna do is we're gonna capture metrics up front, things like the PHQ for depression. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna try, we're gonna set a target, which is generally a 50% reduction in that PHQ. And we're gonna work together as a team until we meet that target. And once we get there, we're gonna graduate that patient from the program. And now we know what treatment's gonna be effective for them ongoing. So they don't need to be seeing a psychiatrist every single month. Instead, the psychiatrist is able to be involved in more cases because they're simply consulting and probably spending, you know, roughly five to 10 minutes a month on a patient, helping the PCP to find the right treatments, which allows just an incredible amount of bandwidth now for this very valuable psychiatric resource that we have. Well, Matt, I do want to follow up on this. You're talking about things like the PHQ-9, and I'm thinking about other quality improvement measures and just quality measurement in general. And so when I'm thinking about the psychiatric collaborative care model and thinking about the quality framework espoused by Avidis Donabadian and how it provides this conceptual way to examine and prioritize behavioral health quality measures. It seems we've become accustomed to process-based HEDIS measures in almost everything we do in healthcare. And in behavioral health, it's important to look at effectiveness of care measures like the antidepressant medication management or follow-up care after hospitalization. And like you've talked about, the PHQ-9s are a must. How does an organization look at incorporating more structural measures into the measurement mix? And if a multidisciplinary tech-enabled collaborative care model has a more holistic view of a patient's well-being, should we also be thinking about how to measure organizational responsiveness in meeting the unmet social needs when treating patients' behavioral health disorders? Working from a technology company, the second half of the question to me is going to be, yes, right? How do we measure these things remotely? But let me put a pin in that for now. You asked a bit about the structural measures that we can we can think about. In terms of collaborative care, we need to find a caseload size that really works well. And when I say caseload size, that's the amount of patients that a care manager has in their caseload. Generally, this can be anywhere from like 60 to 120 patients, depending on acuity of the patient and, and really how efficient the program is. But really thinking about how many patients fall under my care manager. And you can think that, A, we don't want to burn them out, but also much more important to the healthcare administrator is, am I keeping that registry full? And registry is a term for the, the system used to track patient outcomes in behavioral health. So a registry is an essential component of psychiatric collaborative care. One of the challenges is filling up that registry. So how do we identify patients to actually be in the program? So when we think about structural measures, what we're going to think about is, are we actually getting patients into the program? Um, and are we actually at a caseload size that is manageable and cost-effective for us as an organization? You can also think about training, making sure that our staff really understands the model and their role and the use of technology to support both the staff, which again, we're going to talk a bit about the registry, I'd imagine a little bit more, but also with the patients, right? Making sure that they feel supported and cared for between appointments because they're going to be meeting with their care manager, you know, maybe twice a month, but that's a lot of time in between. And these aren't long therapy sessions. These are 15 to 30 minute check-ins. So making sure that they really feel supported with the resources that they need, making sure that those components are in place so that the staff can be effective. 
Second half was really about kind of making sure that the social determinants and social needs are met. There needs to be a process upfront for really screening these sort of things. So thinking about food insecurity, housing insecurity, a number of, of different loneliness is a, is a really important social determinant thinking about COVID-19. How do we measure these things up front? And that should really be part of the intake process in collaborative care or integrated behavioral health models. And we need to be documenting that and making sure that those things are being addressed. That's also a big part of the role as the care manager in collaborative care, because we know if social needs aren't being met, we can think about Maslow and the hierarchy of needs. If I don't know where I'm eating, right, I'm not really going to be able to work on cognitive behavioral therapy to address my depression. I need to fuel my brain before I can do that hard work. Couldn't agree more that we need to really think about how we support these social needs. And I think the best way to do that is really upfront assessment, measurement, documentation, and then making sure that we have the resources and community resources in place to then refer or at least link up that patient with the resources that they need. Well, Matt, you've done an exceptional job, I think, of explaining the need to improve health outcomes by integrating behavioral health and a primary care, leveraging technology. We're going to get more into that. But I, I, I think back at my experience in running ACOs, and I remember thinking about behavioral health as something that was seemingly elusive. Like I, we just couldn't figure it out because there wasn't the right access points to get patients in to see specialists. So we focused on other things that were maybe you know low-hanging fruit. Like like the things I mentioned earlier, like the, the chronic conditions. But in thinking about cost savings, behavioral health integration has a tremendous impact. And for our listeners out there, I just wanted to run through a couple of stats, you know, just to hit that point home a little bit. But if you're a patient with a chronic disease, you're three to four times more likely to have a, a behavioral health comorbidity, which if left untreated, can lead to functional impairments, poor compliance, increased costs. Patients with chronic disease and behavioral health comorbidities also cost as much as 50% more than those without the behavioral health condition. For example, if you're a person with diabetes, you might cost the Medicaid system 9,000 per year. But if you're a person that concurrently struggles with a mental health illness or a substance use disorder, that cost skyrockets to more than $36,000. And the same is true when you look at any of the, the major chronic conditions like CHF or COPD and, and others. And then patients who are depressed are three times more likely to be non-compliant with the treatment plan. They have a higher risk of physical illness. Primary care physicians prescribe 67% of the psychotropic medications and 80% of the antidepressants in the U.S., even though primary care has been shown to deliver suboptimal behavioral health care, which begs for integration. And one last thing I'll mention, the American Psychiatric Association estimates $26 billion to $48 billion annually could be saved in the healthcare system through effective integration of medical and behavioral services, representing a 5 to 10% decrease in the nation's overall healthcare spending. So Matt, with all that said, you know, I wanted to see if you could provide our listeners maybe with a few examples of organizations that are out there really pursuing a more advanced behavioral medical integration that's leading to, of course, better clinical outcomes, but also the cost outcomes that are associated with shared savings and these risk-based contracts. And then also, what are your views on the value movement and how that's going to accelerate the integration of behavioral health in the long term? When we think about cost, man, does, does mental health matter? And I think, I, I hate to be cynical, but this is why the time is now, right? We have a policy window that is open. 
because all of a sudden payers, healthcare administrators really understand that individuals with physical health conditions and mental health or substance use conditions are two to three times more expensive than someone with just that physical health condition. So when you look at different studies that have been done, particularly out of the University of Washington and the AIM Center, we can think about the IMPACT trial. This is one of the most famous collaborative care studies. And what they found is that for every dollar that they actually invested in collaborative care, there was a return on investment in long-term health cost of six to one. So that means if I spent $100 uh, on this program, I was gonna get $600 back in savings. And estimates range roughly five to 10% of total healthcare cost can be saved over a period of two to four years for patients that receive collaborative care. And we're working with a number of partners that are not just performing collaborative care, they're, they're thriving with collaborative care and seeing the outcomes and the cost savings. There's a few organizations that we work with, particularly in the chronic pain space, that have value-based arrangements and, and shared savings agreements for things like low back programs. And what they're finding is that by incorporating any level of behavioral health integration, so one's coming to mind where they don't have a psychiatrist on staff, but they do have care managers and they are measuring outcomes and they are thinking about how to treat these conditions in the care. And they are seeing cost savings of hundreds of thousands of dollars that they're, they're getting revenue back to them. So again, as much as we like to think that the reason we would do this is because it's good for patients, because it is, but the cost savings coming back in these risk-sharing agreements are, are quite phenomenal and more than enough to pay for the program themselves. I do get a little worrisome if we think about just value-based care. It's a little hard to predict when we think about implementing these new models. Fee-for-service reimbursement is a little more stable, at least if the payers are reimbursing, which we can get into a little bit, but that really allows for a more sustainable model. And a lot of the advocates I'm talking with today are thinking, yes, we need to be thinking about value-based care, particularly as a driver to bring integrated behavioral health, but we really shouldn't just do away with some of the fee-for-service elements because it's such a big incentive to get people to stand these programs up, particularly in the short term. Health First down in Florida, a great organization we're working with, has really been looking for a way to perform collaborative care effectively and efficiently because it is time consuming. Um, there's a huge administrative burden, but what they're doing is looking for technology solutions where they can screen the entire population up front before a patient even comes to the office. I can know if they potentially have a mental health condition. I can reach out proactively to these individuals fill up my registry. Again, we're going to keep using these terms and normalize it. So I'm going to fill up my registry, get patients into the program so that we can start it up, be able to use my care managers right off the bat, and then using registry, cloud-based registry solutions like Neuroflow to really help with things like tracking time, knowing which billing codes to use, delivering digital health assignments between the sessions with the patient, which has made them a much more efficient delivery of collaborative care than was really ever thought possible just a few years ago. Matt, I love where you're going with this. And I want to stay on the topic of the technology for a little bit in regards to the collaborative care model. As you said, Neuroflow provides a cloud-based registry tool that can capture notes, track the times for care management intervention, flag patients for care review, and display analytical trending over time so that providers can have the most effective care review with a psychiatric consultant. Now, many of our listeners out there maybe thinking about adopting digital health tools like yours to improve behavioral health outcomes in the medical setting. How should providers approach this important decision of technology adoption for behavioral health care delivery optimization? 
I mean, with the often publicized use of engaging digital health tools for patient self-care, should they also be thinking about the development of platforms that connect patients to care providers and specialists and empower them to remotely coordinate and deliver effective mental health care at scale? I'd love to hear your perspective on how technology serves as an enabler for a more effective care delivery model for integrated behavioral health in primary care. And what are the downsides of technology, if any, with regard to administrative burdens on the provider? The most common concern I hear, man, if I had a dollar for every time I heard this, is liability and concerns that if I am measuring outcomes remotely, if I am asking people about suicide when they're not in my office, if I am providing digital health content, which is delivered automatically, what kind of risk am I putting myself and my organization in? And we've done a lot of, of research here at Neuroflow around kind of remote suicide screening and, and remote screening more generally and, and where technology fits. And what I'd love people to consider is, you know, if you went to your doctor and they stopped testing your blood pressure because they were worried about the liability of identifying somebody with high blood pressure and not treating it, or if I am concerned about your heart condition, so I'm not going to track any sort of outcomes about it because then I'm liable, that's not protecting you. If you identify patients that are at risk in the population remotely, you are doing a best practice. You are now redefining how we can actually find and identify patients in a population and get them treatment fast. Now, whether you need to reach out in five minutes or one hour, that's going to depend upon your policies that you put in place, your workflows. There is no expectation that you need to call that patient within X number of time. I often kind of associate it with like a voicemail. If a patient calls the clinic and says that they're having thoughts of, of self-harm or suicide on a clinic voicemail, what does that voicemail say? Well, that voicemail is going to say that this is not monitored in real time. If you need help now, please call 911, things like that. We can do the same thing with technology. We can actually push patients to the right resources immediately. We can push them toward the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline or the National Crisis Text Line or any sort of organizational resources. So not only can we identify these patients in real time, but we can actually give them and link them up with the right resource for them immediately, again, with the goal here of saving lives and making lives better. So that's by far the biggest concern I ever hear about using technology is, is the liability that the organization but the truth is, is that by hiding behind things, you are not making your organization less liable. And as long as you have the policies and procedures in place, which I love to do, I love to talk shop, then you are absolutely protected from liability, assuming those policies are followed. So I'd say that's the biggest downside is kind of developing some of these, these new workflows, making sure that we understand liability and risk and working through different IT teams, things like that. But boy, does it do the benefits outweigh any of those downside risks. I've mentioned a few of these things already, but being able to really identify and fill the registry and get your program up and running fast, I can't tell you how valuable that is. So being able to, from month one, have a full registry, a full up-running program, and be able to bill and reimburse for, for patients is really a way to set yourself up for a sustainable model. We're also able to do things like screen with the PHQ-9 remotely. And that might sound like not a big deal, right? Like we've been screening for PHQ-9s for a while now, but what I want you to consider is how much time it takes for that care manager to actually do this over the phone. When I have to read the question to you in all four answer choices, often having to read them over again, clarifying questions. I mean, we're talking five to 10 minutes each time I have to do this assessment, which when I can sit down and read the questions in my own time in the comfort of my home, 
the research shows, A, you're actually lower likely to get more accurate results. And B, we're now able to use that extra time that the care manager has to actually perform the behavioral interventions at, that are going to make the outcome changes we want. So we're able to make them more efficient. We're also able to really reduce the amount of platforms and different solutions that a care manager has to go into. You know, right now, when we go into different organizations, we'll have care managers that are using an Excel document as a registry or Excel spreadsheet as a registry. They'll do their time tracking somewhere else. They'll have to go into the EHR to do all their notes. And by the end of the day, they're going into four different platforms. Our goal is to really have one central place for that. That care manager needs to go into to do everything that they need to do from documentation, notes, identifying which patients I need to speak with today with my psychiatric consultant, risk stratify quickly to know which of my patients are at the greatest risk, um, assign digital homework, right? Being able to do all of that from one place is, is quite game-changing and, and really has not been done to date. And then finally, the last thing that technology really enables to do is to make life easier for the PCP as well. So through EHR integrations, we can actually make sure that the data flows exactly where it needs to go for that PCP. So when we're doing these outcome measures, whether it's PHQ or GAD or, or whatever we're assessing and measuring, having all that information flow back to the discrete data fields within the EHR so that this isn't a new workflow for the PCP, so that they know where to go and look for these things they will never have to go in neuroflow. That's never the goal. The goal for them is to be able to get what they need from the EHR and not change fundamentally what they do from a day to day. And we can do that through EHR integrations and make life a lot easier for each person in the care team. Well, Matt, we've spent some time talking about technology and I think we all agree it's not the holy grail, but it's such an enabler and it's crucial that you have a technological foundation to really create the collaboration that's necessary. And, you know, I think about collaboration and really tackling this problem of behavioral health in our country and collaborative networks are really going to be the next evolution, I think, in productivity in the healthcare sector. And it's going to come about through companies like yours that are really partnering with your clients and making sure that you're aligned in terms of outcomes and everyone is succeeding together. And to be a little cliche, you know, really make creating the village to make value work. And you mentioned your partnership with uh, Health First, which is a Florida-based payer that has really embraced the collaborative care model and is looking to Neuroflow to really help the health plan enhance documentation for depression, improving their premium allocation, obviously transforming clinical outcomes. There is also um, a partnership I was reading about with Prudential that is working with Neuroflow to really uh, use the technology platform and leverage it in a way to improve disability outcomes for Prudential's claimants. So Matt, can you speak a little bit about just the importance of relationships, you know, how Neuroflow approaches relationships with its partners, and then ultimately what we need in value-based care to really create an ecosystem where everyone's aligned and really looking at the right things in terms of uh, moving the needle on this important problem of behavioral health integration? Let me tell you, everyone you mentioned to me, these are organizations that are meaningful. These are partnerships in every sense of the, of the word and in the way. Prudential, we meet with regularly to talk about how can we continue to iterate and improve this program to really meet the program goals and what they want to accomplish. And one great group we're working with today is the United States Air Force. And what's great about what we're doing is we're not coming in to any organization and saying, hey, here's how you should do things. What we're doing and trying to ask is what are your goals? 
What programs do you already have going that we can help support? So we talk about US Air Force and Prudential, and we're not doing collaborative care with them. We are doing integrated behavioral health because we're bringing behavioral health where it traditionally has not been. But what we're actually doing is we're able to screen populations. Again, big value prop here for us is being able to identify folks throughout the entire population, identify folks that would benefit from resources, and send them really tailored resources. So if I identify that Eric has depression, then I can send Eric information around where I can access treatment for depression in the Air Force. That could be at my, my local mental health flight on base. I'm also going to get some DCBT type content. So I'm actually going to be getting some digital health resources and information that even if there is a waiting period for me to get into see that therapist, I'm going to be able to start engaging and doing some self-management. Or maybe I'll get some activities around what to expect in therapy so that when I first step into the office, I feel prepared and understand that, hey, that first session is going to be an intake and it's probably not going to make me feel better because it's going to take a few sessions, right? So really be able to set the landscape there. And more back to collaborative care, because that's, that's a lot of what the discussion is, is really being able to come in as consultants as well. We understand this model so well and how the workflows work and how to include everybody. But there's never a one size fits all. So being able to come in, having those discussions, having our customer success team who are absolute collaborative care wizards coming in to support with these implementations so that organizations aren't doing this alone because it does take a village to get this done. And, and we want to be part of that. We want to be part of the community and we want these organizations to be successful. So we're going to come in and we're going to help understand your goals. We're going to come in and really show you what's worked in other areas and lead with proposals but ultimately we're here to support you. And that's what's been so great about working with all of these organizations is I really do feel a fondness in my heart for working with all these groups. Certainly some of the VSOs like Stop Soldier Suicide and Wounded Warrior Project are, are particularly meaningful to me, but working with health systems and bringing collaborative care to the masses is it's a dream. And it's, it's, it's quite amazing to be able to see how quickly this is now moving because people understand the value and we're here to support that. Matt, there's one thing I wanted to ask you about also. We've been talking a lot about mental health of patients and the people that are in our communities, but we often forget about providers and those in our health system. I mean, they're a vibrant part of our community and they're suffering just as much. There's studies that report now that one in five physicians have experienced burnout in the last year. And there's certainly creative ways to address this and make sure that, you know, we have a healthy workforce that's really providing optimal care to patients. And we need to be thinking about the health effects of physicians and other clinical staff members, especially given that we're seeing increased rates of depression as SUD, PTSD, and even suicide. Can you speak a little bit about that and, you know, and what Neuroflow is thinking in terms of the healthcare workforce and the mental health challenges that we have? Sure. I'm going to self-disclose a short story real quick, which is my time at Walter Reed caring for combat trauma was incredibly challenging. The most devastating injuries you can particularly imagine. So after a while, I, I wasn't able to take leave. I worked for a year straight. I would picture the metro in DC crashing and burning with me inside of it on my way to work virtually every morning. And what was so weird about it is that I wasn't scared. It was almost comforting. And I just, I didn't think much of it, right? I just kind of went back to work and just sucked it up. I cared for my patients because that's what mattered the most to me. And then I went back home and I was just miserable. And it kind of just became really normal for me. And understanding now that was clearly burnout and that what I was doing was, was a very challenging job. But let me just say that I empathize so much 
with what's going on right now in our healthcare industry, we're asking so much of our providers. And with COVID, oh my goodness, like you are not allowed to take vacation. We have staff leaving at alarming rates. So now all of a sudden you're understaffed. So we really need to find ways to care for our providers. And there's a few ways we can do that. We've talked a bit about integrated behavioral health. And that's kind of a common thread to this conversation. And we know that team-based approaches can help a lot. So if you are not, if all the burden is not on you to care for a patient and you can share that weight, that can help. And, and so talking about collaborative care and some of these different ways that we can help patients is one way to actually help with provider burnout. But we're also working much more specifically with providers through technology. So we're actually rolling out with health systems now to support their healthcare providers. So we'll actually have a separate rollout, which is sometimes, again, we, we very much are all about making sure we customize and, and make things flexible, but we might work with like the EAP or other employee programs where we are able to identify folks that are at particular risk for burnout, give them resources, and also provide a lot of psychoeducation about what can I do about preventing or treating provider burnout. So those are some of the initiatives that we do with health systems is not just support the patients, but let's also take a moment to talk about your providers and how we can support them. That's a big initiative we have undergoing now with quite a few health systems. And again, the goal is to really just Make sure that the providers know that they're being supported, that they are given really tailored and individualized content, because we know that they are exceptionally medically literate. So making sure that we're not just talking down to them, but giving them some real actionable steps on things that they can do to not be thinking about themselves burning on the metro, because that was not a pleasant place to be. And I don't want any of my peers to be in that situation. Matt, I'm just so grateful for all of your insights and really grateful for your time. And as we're wrapping up today, I want to ask you about your parting thoughts on the innovation in healthcare that's happening in our industry today. And, and we've seen so much increased investment in innovative solutions, a lot of technology solutions, and we're seeing a lot of people think about how to improve the healthcare system and drive down costs and improve care. And we're seeing a lot of consumer-centric solutions. And so I want to ask your perspective on how will consumer-centric solutions in this technology innovation help our country win the race to value in the years to come? Let me start by telling you that I came to Neuroflow for a few reasons. A is this team's amazing. But because of where Neuroflow started, which was a tool for therapists to practice measurement-based care, but the important aspect here was that there was a feedback loop. And one of my most challenging things about working in the DOD and the VA setting was there were 16, I don't know, probably 20 different apps now, one for each different condition. None of that information fed back to me or the care team. What we were left with was, hey, here's something that might help you. Good luck. And I don't think that's the right solution. I think, I think what we need is to involve the care team in these consumer products. And that's really what we tried to do. We, we have a very friendly and engaging consumer platform, which includes behavioral economics to actually reward patients for doing the right thing. So if I complete my assessments, I get points, I gather those points, and I'm able to redeem them for gift cards. And why that's so important is because if we don't collect this data, then there's nowhere for us to really start getting people directed to or to begin practicing measurement-based treatment to target. So it's a long-winded way of basically saying, I am all for empowering the consumer. Let's put the power in their hands, but let's also give them the extra support of knowing that the care team is there and that 
when there is a time of need that will feed back and alert a care team to reach out because we're not trying to replace the individual. Our goal is not to replace the therapist or the psychiatrist. I think there's a human element that is far too important. But what we can do is make people more efficient and more effective. And that's really our goal. So my hat's off to anybody in this space that's trying to make a difference and and help consumers and help patients. But that feedback loop is just so critical. So my suggestion to anybody in this space is to think about how do we use this information or how do we help tailor treatment plans that benefit both the patient, but also can help our care team understand what's going on with that patient and, and what kind of treatments they're receiving. I think that's why I love our approach is it's, it's both the consumer product, but much more importantly to me is involving that care team and making sure we're, we're getting a very personalized experience, both in terms of geographic resources and what's available through my organization. The way Neuroflow works is you could go into the app store and check out our awesome reviews and download Neuroflow, but you need an invitation from either your organization or your therapist. So we're used by a number of different organizations. I mean, I've touched on kind of chronic pain and the physical health space. We're used in oncology. We're used in women's health. We're used in emergency departments. We're used by payers for population health. But ultimately, the important aspect here is that that data is feeding back to somebody because our goal is to identify folks that are at risk and make sure that they're getting the care that they need. What we're here to do is empower the consumer and organizations to know that support is there and that they're getting really tailored resources. We don't want to just send you generic information where you're going to have a long wait and things like that. We want to make sure that you have personalized content coming to you and making sure that your care team is able to get the information that they need in order to provide the best care that they can. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining us this week in the Race to Value. And, you know, as we conclude our conversation today, how can our listeners find out more about the great work that you're doing at Neuroflow? Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. This is this is a lot of fun to talk shop with you guys and, and integrated behavioral health and, and provider burnout. All these topics are, are just so vitally important to discuss right now. You know, to learn more about Neuroflow and what we're doing, you can certainly visit neuroflow.com. Check out some of our pages on, on collaborative care and how we support these initiatives. Also follow us on social media. And, and I kind of say that with a with a laugh because um, you know, our Instagram page or, or the gram, I guess as as us millennials call it, is not just promoting neuroflow, but really some good uplifting comics and just things that that have made my day. So check us out on all the social media platforms, um, visit our website and you know, feel free to to hit us up with any questions you have. You know, we're we're in this to support patients and members. So whatever we can do, we're we're gonna provide our assets and resources to help you. 